We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. All right, we've been looking at this uh, material that uh, for some months off and on as I have opportunity about shepherding a child's heart, and I want to continue that today. Um, it's been a, a little bit since we touched on it, so I'll, this may be a little bit of review. I'm not sure exactly where we left off last time. Um, <clears throat> we were talking about the idea of conscience. Uh, actually, just to kind of back up just a second, we talked about two tools that are available in training youngsters. One is a physical discipline, and the other, which is much more commonly applied, is communication. Okay, And uh, so we've kind of laid out that outline. We're trying to think about communication, particularly uh, in terms of the child's conscience. And as I've said before, this does also apply to uh, big kids as well, like us, <laughs> um, and the, the need that we have for change. Uh, conscience is a tool that, uh, it's, a, it's a thing, it's a, it's a faculty in the human constitution that uh, accuses or else excuses, Paul says in Romans chapter 2, that um, works on somebody when they sin uh, or confirms when they have done something that is right. That conscience has been, as, as I said, implanted by God according to his creation of humankind but obviously has been damaged uh, in the fall, is damaged by malinformation being fed into it, uh, by bad practice when somebody uh, you know, doesn't listen to their conscience uh, to the point where sometimes it seems like you know, the, the classic case of a cold-blooded killer doesn't seem to even have a conscience. Well, they do have a conscience, but it just is so twisted up and messed up that it's hard to recognize as a normal thing, a normal functioning uh, faculty in, in the uh, human constitution. So uh, when we, and I mentioned this, I think maybe the last time we talked about it, and this would have been probably in December, uh, when we talk about doing evangelism, so stepping away from the child raising, child rearing for a moment, when we do evangelism, we need to think about how to appeal to people's consciences, don't we? Drew is very familiar with this and Ben and their evangelism uh, efforts uh, on the campus and elsewhere in the community that, uh, you know, we don't have a lot of common ground with an unbelieving person beyond our humanity and our conscience. You know, we, we don't even have a mind that operates the same. So you cannot simply appeal to somebody's intellect and say, I'm going to build up your fact base until you get smart enough in order to believe in God. There are a lot of people that are very smart and have a very large fact base, but they are rebels against God. Uh, but the conscience is one of those common areas that we have that you can appeal to, and so it may be effective to, uh, more effective to appeal to the conscience rather than to appeal directly to like the uh, cognition of 
facts and figures and reasoning and you know all of that sort of thing. So you ask people about their you know their conduct and uh, ask them if they really think it's right, if they really think in their conscience that it's right, and that that. Faculty of the conscience is what we can also use and should be careful to think about using with our children. God has created people this with people with this capacity. And communication and discipline, those two tools that we talked about, talk to the conscience of a person. Or maybe I should say this, they we should aim for them to talk to the conscience of the person, not just to the physicality of the person or you know, bending them to our will while their conscience is untouched by our work with them. So how to get to the conscience, how to work with it is, is a question we want to ponder a little bit. Let's turn to Proverbs 23 and look at a couple of sections in this proverb and then a couple of uh, parables also, a couple of things in the New Testament. So in Proverbs 23, a selection of verses there. How are we going to get to the conscience? Uh, you know, may our, how may our words penetrate deeper than just the surface? So Proverbs 23 and verse 17. <clears throat> Do not let your heart envy sinners, but be zealous for the fear of the Lord all the day. So we're talking about the heart here. Remember, the heart is the kind of central nervous system of the, of the person, and uh, deciding functions are there and thinking, and uh, the conscience is in there somewhere as well. Verse 19, Hear, my son, and be wise, and guide your heart in the way. So there's a faculty of hearing, an ability to be wise and a guide of your heart in the way. The heart and the conscience closely connected. Verse 22, listen to your father who begot you and do not despise your mother when she is old. Or verse 23, buy the truth and do not sell it. Also wisdom and instruction and understanding. So if you if you see the truth as a good investment, I mean, it's like a long-term hold here. Buy and don't sell, right? In stock market terms, hold it for long-term. Also wisdom and instruction, you um, inculcate those things into yourself and find ways to get more of them so that you store away truth, wisdom, and instruction. And guess what then your conscience uh, and understanding, guess what your conscience has then to work with? It has all those factors that can help it to process things correctly. The rod, uh, you know, corporal discipline uh, is of limited utility. It's of utility, but it's of limited utility relative to con the conscience working in uh, a young person. Um, when your conscience, or let's say when the conscience of your child does the accusing, you don't have to do anymore. You see that? They, they have that built in, and it works on them without you saying anything. Then let's go to Matthew 21, and we'll see a couple of examples of uh, what trip our author here in the book calls conscience, I think he calls them conscience busters, 
Otherwise, maybe that's a term that I came up with, but Matthew 21. Uh, and, and, of course, they can go in two directions, can't they? Uh, Conscience-busting uh, illustrations. They can make somebody harder or they can help somebody to respond. So Matthew 21, verse 23. Now, when he came to the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? But Jesus answered and said to them, I will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. Then here's his question. The baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? So he's really throwing the, uh, kind of throwing the question in a different form back at them and putting them on the same horns of the dilemma that they're trying to put him on. Because they're asking, where's your authority come from? Well, if he answers from God, they're just going to say he's a blasphemer. If he says from men, then he's gonna, they're going to say, well, we don't have to listen to you. And so he kind of pushes it back in their direction. And they reasoned among themselves. Okay, so they had to take some time, and they had to think. And they said, hmm, if we say from heaven, he's going to say to us, then why did you not believe him then? But if we say from men, you know, they're, they're abstracting it enough to not kind of go, how can I say, down to the little details. Well, is it from John or is it from other men who have assigned him this or whatever? It's just generally from the realm of man versus generally from the realm of heaven. If we say from men, we fear the multitude for all count John as a prophet. So their, their minds, their thinkers, we could say their conscience is at least a little touched by this. So they answered Jesus and said, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So not, I, I'm, I'm hopeful, but I'm, well, maybe I'm not too hopeful. <laughs> I'm hopeful that the Pharisees saw two levels to this. One, that they couldn't answer the question, so obviously he's not going to answer their question, but also that it showed their conscience that they were doing something to Jesus that was unrighteous. So putting, putting that, even putting that question to him, well, let me say it this way, putting that question to him with the attitude that they put it to him, you know, even Nicodemus, one amongst them generally, came to Jesus in John chapter 3 by night, remember? And he said, we know, what do we know? That you're from God. No man can do the things that you're doing unless God is with him. Yeah. So he knew as much, but these guys had a terrible attitude and they were trying to get him. But they didn't like what he said. To go on in the next verse. Verse 28, but what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. Okay, there's actually two levels of conscience going on here, one in the illustration and one in the recipients of the illustration. He said, I will not, but afterward he regretted it and went. Okay, so his conscience worked on him, and he showed by his actions that he was obedient in the end. Then he, the father, came to the second and said, likewise, you know, go work in my vineyard. And uh, he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. 
So what happened in his conscience? Apparently nothing. He, you know, he, he knew he was supposed to respond you know, ritualistically with a yes, I'm doing that, but he didn't care enough to actually go about doing it. Verse 31, which of the two did the will of his father? May I uh, pause also here and illustrate that the Lord in appealing to the conscience of these Pharisees uses very effectively the tool of the question mark. Uh, This is interesting. Yesterday we had our uh, hackathon and we were looking at the Makusi or Makushi is how you say it, Bible translation, and the uh, optical character recognition recognized some of the question marks correctly, and then it added other question marks when there was stray marks on the page and it interpreted it as a question mark. So we had to go through and find where the real question marks were and where the, you know, where the stray ones were and get rid of those. Um, because even in that language, they use the question mark to talk about, you know, to, to indicate a question. So the question mark is a very good uh, thing to use, a, uh, an open-ended kind of question, a question with more than a yes or no answer, perhaps. Which of the two did the will of his father? Question mark, and the question mark invites them to think for a second and maybe apply what they've learned. So they said to him, the first, Jesus said to them, assuredly I say to you, that the tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. So the conscience of these Pharisees didn't work on them too well. They rejected what the Lord had said they rejected what John had said. We're going to see that more this morning later in Luke chapter 7. And then he tells another parable, verse 33. Uh, here another parable, there was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, built a tower, leased it to vine dressers. You're familiar with this. He went to a far country. When the vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. He took his servants and beat one, killed one, and stoned another and sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. <clears throat> but when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. This parable really isn't about the guys in the story, although they're like the... Uh, the it's really about the Pharisees who are listening. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? So they said, it kind of sounds like before they realized he was telling the parable against them, they said to him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will tender, render rather to him the fruits in their seasons. So their conscience was working well enough to process, look, that's unjust, what was happening in that story. It needs to be fixed. It, it needs to, the punishment needs to be doled out. Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. So they, based on their own judgment of that unjust situation, which applies to them because that's what they're doing. 
they unwittingly condemn themselves. He says, that's what's going to happen. The vineyard's taken away in the story. The kingdom of God is taken away from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. <clears throat> but then when they sought to lay hands on him, see, they rejected what he said. So, but these were getting into their heads, so to speak, and trying to convict them of their sin. Um, so, the other thing that we notice here is that Jesus not only effectively used the question mark, but he effectively used the story. To effectively use a story for us, I, I mean, for me, I'll just say, maybe you join me in this, to, to effectively use a story in a situation with our kids takes a lot of thinking, doesn't it? You've got to think hard. But you have no more important job in your life than raising your kids. Okay? Your job is not the most important job you have. Okay? Your kids are extraordinarily important. Your church participation, membership, attendance, extraordinarily important. Your relationship with God, extraordinarily important. Uh, but if, if kids are the most precious resource that we have, then we best spend more time than we probably are with raising them and helping them to come along. I think that it's very possible, and maybe I'll ask you to evaluate yourself on this, it's possible that we and our children may cut off the process of communication and discipline before it gets to the conscience. We get upset at our kids, or our kids get upset at us, or storm off to their room, or we don't finish the conversation or it's just to you know, yell at them or just tell them this or command them that or whatever, we cut the process off before it gets to the conscience. Um, you know, that that's, can kind of happen too with somebody who is kind of on the fringes of a church and they won't, they won't go or they, they've gone before in their past and they won't continue to go because they don't want to hear uh, preaching about sin. Sin bothers them. So what they do and what perhaps our kids do and perhaps what we do is we box out or block out the uh, operation of communication to the extent that it doesn't get to the conscience. You know what boxing out is in basketball, right? Ball's going toward the hoop. You get yourself between, the, if you're a defender, between the hoop and the guy that you hope is behind you. <laughs> get low, spread your arms, trying to get a rebound off of that. Well, you're boxing the guy out from getting to the ball or getting to the hoop. And it may be that we box out uh, opportunities for the conscience to be impacted because, you know, we say, okay, enough. I don't want to hear it no farther or we don't you know, continue the communication to a level that's helpful to the conscience or we blow it in the beginning because we start out angry and uh, dealing with the situation the wrong way. So look for opportunities to avoid boxing out uh, you know, the conscience. As I say, when the conscience is operational in your child, 
it's a great delight because you see that you don't have to say anything. They, they're aware of their situation themselves. I hope you've been able to experience that. You want correction to be beyond or deeper than behavior, right? It's not enough for the child to do the, uh, to do the chore, to just do the chore, grumbling all the way, right? Let me shift gears a little bit. Um, think about this idea of the conscience. There was a, an illustration given here which was quite helpful of, let me see if I can reconstruct it. Church has an offering plate in the back, I think, anyway. Uh, a man saw a boy in the church take money out of the plate and pocket it. And so he went to talk to the pastor, <clears throat> told him about that. So what did the pastor do? Well, I think he did what he should have done, and that is maybe what the first guy should have done in the first place, which is go talk to the father of the boy who did the thievery. Okay? The father is the one that's going to discipline the child. Okay? So anyway, the pastor brings the father and the son into his office briefly after the service and talks to them. And uh, what we're going to illustrate with that story is that God's mercy is displayed when we're caught in our sin. God's mercy is displayed when we're caught in our sin and it helps our conscience not to be hardened when we get away with sin. Our conscience is hardened, isn't it? And then the next time, the child will try to do it again. And so the man spoke, the, sorry, the pastor spoke to the, the father and to the son, more directly to the son in his office, and you know, said that this very thing that you've done is why Jesus came. Uh, we want to steal, our hearts want to steal, but he came to die for us and change us from the inside so that we would not be stealers, but thieves, but we would be givers. So that child stealing from the offering plate fessed up to, yeah, I, I took that $2 or whatever it was out of the offering plate. And uh, they thought that was the end of it. And they prayed. And then the boy reached into his pocket and took out the other 20 that he had taken and gave it to the pastor and said, with tears, I stole that too. The conscience worked on the boy because he fell under conviction by, I trust, the Spirit of God, and it changed him from the inside. And this is an illustration, I think, that's helpful for us because what we're trying to do when we're working with the conscience is not to, uh, we're not, not trying to dumb down our rules so that they're uh, rules that can be kept by a sinner easily. I don't know if I'm saying that well. You don't want to make the, uh, the, the situation such that, you know, we can, you know, you, you water it down or you make it so that the obedience is just, you know, it's enough to obey with a terrible attitude. 
you want to make it so that the children understand that there's something going on in their heart that's making them chafe against that call of God to be obedient to, the, to their parents. Um, so anyway, going back to that illustration, God's grace is displayed in being caught in sin. God's mercy is displayed when we're caught in our sin. Um, another thing that this communication does by aiming toward the conscience and really being meaningful with the young person is that our, our, a rich life of communication with our kids helps them to learn how to communicate. When did you learn how to communicate? You know, how, how, you remember struggling with that when you were a young person? Struggling with it in interpersonal relationships? Talking about meaningful things? You know, in the home, it's the best place for, for young people to learn how to talk about serious things with their parents, things that they're feeling on the inside. You don't want communication to be a one-way dominated uh, parent telling child. <laughs> You've got to also allow them to express and think. So I was thinking about this in um, wondering if you had any ideas about some questions that you can ask your kids to draw out what they're thinking and what their conscience is dealing with. Have you asked have you have you asked any questions of your kids that you've maybe thought, wow, that worked? <laughs> that really had an impact? That was helpful? What do you think? Do you have any ideas for us? Maybe this exercise will be helpful too because it will help us to think about a little more deeply how we communicate with the kids. Yes, sir? And I, before you said that, I was going to say don't give that caveat, Tim, because uh, a lot of cancer doctors haven't had cancer either, but they can be very helpful. <laughs> Good. It's a question revolving around love. You know, does your love, does your behavior demonstrate what you say, how, what esteem you hold for your mother? Uh, do you love your mom? Well, yeah. Well, your behavior doesn't line up with that. That's good, Tim. That's good. A little soul searching there. Any other examples? Yes, sir. We're looking for wisdom here. <laughs> Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, I like that very much. Uh, we might ask ourselves that before we lay our head down on the pillow at night. If there was one thing I could do differently, could have done differently today. Um, yeah, that's good. Who else has one? Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Right. So what are the long-term ramifications of your behavior? And, you know, flower up the question as appropriate for the context, but got the idea. Yeah. Yes? Yeah, so the why did you do that question, that can often be met with the response, I don't know. Um, you need to follow up with something, something else. Uh, you know, a child is so in the moment that it seemed to them like a good idea at the time. <laughs> but after all is said and done and the implications played out, it didn't seem like such a good idea afterwards, right? So... Yeah. Who else? Dan. Uh huh. why question about why do you suppose that is or why did that thing happen that way or why did that person say that, that kind of a thing. That's good. Ben, I think I saw your hand. Mm-hmm. So I have uh, jotted down two that's been suggested. How, how was that loving toward your sibling uh, or something like that? The idea of love that you're not loving your neighbor. And then how did your behavior, uh, say, how did your behavior not line up with the Bible? Something about that. Um, Right. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that's that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, clearly, all of our work toward the conscience is to bring the scriptures to bear on that conscience as the good information that that conscience needs in order to function properly. Yes. Other ways. Uh, did I see another? Yes. Uh-huh. Right. Right. Well, that, and that adds more to the parents' workload to know how their kid is going to r- respond to certain approach to things. And you notice that pattern probably over the course of time. Mm-hmm. Right. Right, right. And then at some time you may have to just tell them, well, your, your, your quick response to shut down and box out the continued work here is, is not acceptable. We have to you know, go a little farther than that. Yes? Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. So hopefully our kids will be able to, will help them to think about their hearts, the fountain of life, the conscience, the cross, and uh, show them the inability to obey on their own without the help of God. So we need to, as I was indicating earlier also, hold the standard of righteousness just where it is, where the Bible has it, high not at a dumbed-down place where they can keep it without assistance, you know, an easy law, so to speak, that sort of law that is just, you know, easily accomplishable by them is basically just drives them toward self and away from Christ. Um, Our goal, and we'll close with this, is 
correct behavior flowing from a heart that loves God. Correct behavior flowing from a heart that loves God. And, uh, you know, disobeying you is, you might think disobeying me is one thing and disobeying God is another thing. The fact of the matter is disobeying your parent is disobeying God. So we can't just like let that pass and say, well, it's just me they disobeyed. We'll just kind of you know, forget about it. You can't really allow your child, well, what you're doing is you're training them to disobey, right? By not having your, taking your parental role seriously, you're training them to be disobedient. You're not training them correct behavior flowing from a heart that loves God. So that's our goal. Let's keep that in mind. Again, correct behavior flowing from a heart that loves God. Father, we pray now as we've closed uh, this uh, 40 minutes together or so that these things will work in our hearts, that they'll be helpful to us practically as we think about uh, the next circumstance in which we have to um, have some particular um, training for our children and that this would guide us in all of our um, conduct towards them and remind us that we need to be instilling biblical truth in them so that they can have uh, conscience well informed, so that they can have correct behavior, so that they can uh, develop, we pray, by your grace, a heart that loves you and then good behavior flows out of that rather than just flowing out of self, uh, uh, selfish power or uh, a selfish way of kind of just getting going along to get along but has nothing to do with God so help us i pray with all of our kids in Jesus name amen